y dos. Y dos. Una. Y dos. Hello and welcome to Cortez NYC live stream of the podcast. This is a bi-weekly show broadcasting out of New York City. We are your hosts, Cortez NYC. And Carla de Puerto Rico. And on this show, we talk about art, creativity, city life from a Latino perspective. I'm a visual artist. And I'm a singer. And this is episode 15, Inked. Like always, find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and leave us a review. And Let's give a big shout out to all our people on Instagram, all our active commenters. We got K Dulce, D Menace, a 1200 Rockstar Lifestyle, Smurfy138, Sonny Raimundi, 699, Waste, IF, <laughs> NVCK1, Prox1, GWB, Duddy Jr., Fresh Like Gaddy Son, D Double, Brooklyn Wins, VP Records, Caribbean, Guillotine Cuts, V Tree, ANK, GCV, Suvio, you throw me off with these, Cheeto Fingers, <laughs> Byzine Queens, Dr. Greedy, and Abyss 102. And also a shout out to all our listeners around the United States, in New York, Oregon, Wisconsin, New Jersey, California, District of Columbia, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Illinois, and also in Europe, Spain, Sweden, uh, Czech Republic, United Kingdom, Ireland, and Peru. And we out! No, actually we start. All right, so, Inked. Well, first of all, Carla. Yeah. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we've been doing a lot of interviewing, a lot of people on the show. Yeah. Um, and it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun so far. We're on episode 15. I can't believe it. I know. It, it went by very fast. Yeah. Um, but uh, all the interviews have been fun. Uh, shout out to Alex and to Guillotine Cuts and Over. Um, Dr. Greedy. Dr. Greedy. Yeah, it's been it's been a blast. Um, but so let's go back to let's get back to business here. Art life. Yeah. Let's talk about inking. Um, inking is something that I've always enjoyed doing from the first time that I was challenged to do a logo. That was where I first started inking. Um, I in the '90s when I graduated from high school. I was approached by different uh, record companies to do uh, logos for rap groups. And back then I had no computer skills, so I just took my markers and my pens and I started and white out. And I would just use the copy machine and, and draw by hand and make logos with ink. Uh, back then I was using Sharpies and Pentel pens and white out. And little by little I started developing a style a good style of inking where I really knew what I was doing with the with the black marks and, and cutting back with the white um, and I was doing figures I was doing lettering I was doing figures um, sometimes like mascot characters things like that um, but I slowly started to develop a respect for actual inking I started learning more about comic book art and how comic book artists inked and the techniques behind it And I started getting into uh, working with brush inking. Um, I dabbled in it a little bit back in high school, but I really got into it later on once I started working. Um, and I was asked to do some cartoon characters and I started doing t-shirts and then I really had to do a lot of inking then. Uh, when I first started, I was using, like I said, I was using markers and whiteout. Uh, the markers that I would use, like I said, was Sharpie. Um, 
I used a lot. Of, Pentel has a, a marker called a sign pen, which a sign pen is like a medium. To me, it's like a medium weight of a of tip. It's very flexible tip. It's very spongy. And it, for some reason, the way they designed it, it just lets out a lot of ink. So you can really get some fast sketching done. You get a nice, rich, dark coverage. Um, and then for sharper, for sharper lines, I would use a Pilot Razor Point. Those are, that was my favorite pens. Those are the pens that I would use if I needed to do something quick. If somebody was like, yo, I need some characters done fast, and, and, or if I, if I was working at my full-time job and I need to do cartoon characters quickly, I would use those pens because they would, they would get the marks down fast and I knew that I can uh, count on uh, getting more if they ran out. It was very easy for me just to go get another one from the box. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't have to refill anything or, you know, get ink and put a brush and yeah. put a, a nip. The, those tools are really good for fast things like that. And especially back then when you were... If you were going to scan the artwork anyway, it didn't matter if it was a fine, you know, beautiful inking because you would scan it into the computer, you could raise up the contrast. It didn't really matter. Um, but then later on, I went back to some of the things that I learned in high school but never really practiced, which was ink brush techniques um, and croquo pen techniques and rapidograph techniques. A rapidograph is like a technical pen. It's like a fine point pen, but it's a mechanical pen and it's a, a metal nib and you have to fill it in with ink uh, with, a, with a dropper. Um, it's very messy, it's, it's old school, it's from, it's from back in the, in the 70s and 80s. My, my father used to use those uh, when he was doing architecture. That was, this is what people used to use before computers, they used mm -hmm. technical pens. I mean, for, for a professional, working as, as an architect, doing straight lines or gra any kind of graphing or mapping, that's the tools that they would use because they were so sharp and precise. And they would last long because it was, it was pure ink. They would use real uh, India ink in it. But it's just very slow. If you're sketching quickly, you can scape the paper by mistake. And, and that's where, and, it, and it's very, because it's ink in a metal tip, it can leak if you're moving around your hand too quickly. Right. So that's why I never really, I never really held on to that tool. But then when I, when I started getting back into it and I started slowing down a little bit and trying to learn how to use that tool, it actually proved to be very useful to get some really interesting lines, nice line work and, and sharp, steady lines. Um, I started experimenting with that and then also with croquo pens, which a croquo pen is a, is a nib tip pen it's a dipping pen it's a pen that you have to dip into uh some some sort of cup with ink right uh and usually you would use black india ink for that uh croco pen i think is interesting because it's it's it can give you different variation of line weights and it gives you a very staggered kind of inconsistent line work so it's really good if you're sketching if you know how to use it if you practice using it uh this these tools that I'm talking about now are tools that you really do have to practice. Mm -hmm. You know, the rapidograph, the croco pen. You have to get a feeling for how the nib hits the paper. You can't go backwards. You can't go in every direction like a rolling ball tip or like a marker. You can't go in every direction. If you, if you start to go backwards, like move up, you'll scrape the paper and it'll splatter ink everywhere. So you have to work in one direction, maybe two, but you always have to be aware of how you're stroking the, the nib against the paper. Um, but, because it's pure ink, 
being laid down with a steel tip, you get a very rich black line. And that inconsistent um, wobbly line that you get is very reminiscent of old uh, illustrations from books. Um, the, all the old comics from like the 70s and the 60s, all like the old newspaper comic strips, they were done with croco pens because they would give you that, that interesting sketch line. So it looked like it was done by a pencil, but it was very rich and black, so they couldn't print it. Um, so it gave it a human touch, but it was still, you know, laying down good ink. Yeah. Um, so the croco pen is another good pen. The only problem with that, again, is that it's messy. And, and this is even worse. If you're not careful, you can knock over your ink, which happened to me many times. Uh, you can accidentally uh, drop ink from your pen onto the paper which has happened to me many times um until i started understanding how much ink i needed on the tip uh and because of the metal tip you know, the, the you can even actually actually accidentally stab yourself if you're not paying attention because oh, it's a sharp tip so it it's it's something that you gotta like you gotta really get a feeling for it you gotta have a respect for the tool but it's i think it's a it's a fun tip whenever i want to like do some inking sketch you know some some uh, ink sketches that are kind of like a brainstorm and I just want to try something different and I just want to feel something different you know a different kind of line texture and all that croco pens is what I use and because of the type of tip that it is it gives you really good cross hatching also which is another additive it makes it makes your sketch really feel like a, like a sketch like a not a technical illustration um, and then the other tool that I use that you know, I really enjoy, and, I, and it's the one that I feel is like the, the premier inking tool is uh, a brush. Um, preferably, I would say a liner brush. Um, that's what they're called. Uh, it would be a watercolor brush, any, any brand, it doesn't really matter, as long as it's a watercolor brush and it's a liner. The liners are the best, and you can go from a zero tip to a, a, a one, or maybe sometimes a double zero if you wanna get really fine. Um, but if you're really good, at learning how to use the brush, you can probably get away with a one or even a two, um, depending on how much weight you put on the brush. The beautiful thing about inking with a brush, and this is what I enjoy the most, is that a brush line can can go on for a long distance. You can load up a brush, and you can and you can apply a stroke, and it can apply long, broad strokes that you can't really do with a marker. For some reason, with a marker, the type of stroke that you get is like. It can go for a certain distance, but you kind of get, you kind of stop. Um, with a brush, because of the angle, the way that you kind of like sweep the brush across the paper, you can go for a longer distance and get a more consistent, longer stroke. And if and a brush, if you want to do short dabs, you'll get big blotchy splatters or, or spots of ink um, that are very consistent as well, because the brush lays down ink consistently compared to a marker where you're gonna do little lines and try to fill in an area, a brush, you can lay it down heavy and it'll fill it in in one solid shot. So you get a nice flat jet black ink. Um, another thing about working with a brush is the type of ink you use. I like to use and I recommend a lot for inking with a brush, black Sumi ink, not to be confused with black India ink. Black Sumi ink is Japanese, um, the brand that I use is Yasutomo, and it tends to have 
for me, I like it because it tends to have a, a jet black finish uh, without the chalky texture that black India ink sometimes gets. The Sumi ink lays down flatter on the paper. And also the Sumi ink does not, if you're gonna add marker, like if you're gonna color your inking, uh, the Sumi ink, if you let it dry, let's say for a few hours, it won't smudge. Uh, black India ink sometimes will smudge with a marker. If you lay down marker on top of it, you'll end up rubbing the black India ink off, off the paper and it'll start smudging around. The Sumi ink is very smooth and it dries flat and it doesn't smudge. So that's another reason why I like using the black Sumi ink with brush. Those are the tools. Those are the basic tools. Oh, and the paper. Let's talk about the paper. I forgot yeah. about the paper. The paper I usually use is uh, Bristol paper. Um, it can be smooth or it can be what they call either a plate finish or a vellum finish. Um, so it could be smooth or it could be textured. I don't have a preference. Sometimes I like to ink on textured. I think it's fun to switch around. So I think it all depends on how you feel that day. I, that, that's for me. There's no preference. Um, I've also inked on smooth, like copy paper. I was doing that for a while, for a long time when I used to work at this company and we were doing inking a lot within the art department. I would use the laser copy paper, which would absorb. It wasn't that great, let's say, if I wanted to keep these drawings for a long time, but because these were supposed to be disposable, I was, I was just going to ink and then scan the art and then color it. It didn't really matter if the paper was flimsy. But what I did like about it was that the smooth finish on the copy paper, on the laser copy paper, it would give me a really sharp, sharp, sharp line with the ink and it wouldn't uh, allow the ink to bleed. And that was really good. I, I enjoyed that a lot. And because the paper was thin, I could I can sketch on one piece of paper, put another piece of paper on top and then ink right onto that and kind of see my sketching underneath. Um, usually we, we would use light boxes to, to you know, make it easier to see the, the sketch underneath. But um, the, the, the paper was just a lot, it was a lot easier to like not commit to a big old Bristol paper. Um, but if you're gonna do a, a piece of art that you really want to make it last long and you want to maybe even frame it and use it as a piece of fine art, then I would recommend Bristol paper or even something thicker, which you can go to any art supply store and get like a lot of different types of paper weights and textures and stuff like that. If you really want to get into something for long, long term, then I would get into illustration board, um, which, you know, I've inked on illustration board and I can see the difference as well because you don't get the buckling. Um, and I guess that'll come into my do's and don'ts in inking, right? Um, yes. When you're inking, inking is, when you're inking, you're use, it's, it's, made, it's got water in it, right? That's the solvent is liquid water. If you put too much ink at one time, the paper will start to buckle. It'll start to wrinkle. Um, because you're wetting the paper as you're inking and if you're inking too much at one time You'll end up warping all your paper and that's why it's better sometimes to do illustration board or, or Bristol board because you'll avoid Warping the paper, but if you know how to control the amount of water or ink quote-unquote that you're putting onto the paper You can do a little bit at a time and, and you can work with thinner paper. It just depends on your level of um of knowledge of, of how much water to paper you should add, you know. Now, when you're gonna start a project, you want to have all your pencils laid down first. Um, and that's something I had to learn when I first started inking cartoon characters was that 
I would try to sketch and I would get bored of sketching because I was like, well, I'm going to ink this anyway. So I'm, why do I have to sketch everything? And I would just sketch, cut, sketch slightly. And then I would let it go. And I'd be like, all right, I'm going to start inking. And I would just start inking some of it. And that was a mistake. I learned later on that the best inking is done when you sketch everything completely first and have the patience to see all the line work through. If you if you look at the sketching as a, a practice for your inking, your inking is going to be better because you gave yourself the opportunity to practice and to kind of pinpoint where are the long strokes, where are the short strokes, where's the cross hatching, where's the solid shapes. So uh, sketching everything is good. I like to sketch when I'm going to ink. I like to use a harder pencil. Sometimes like a 2H is good for me because it doesn't it doesn't uh, leave a heavy mark on the paper and it's easier for me to erase later. And when I ink, it just basically covers it all up and I don't really see the pencils underneath. When you're gonna sketch, try to sketch the most detail that you can, but without laying down too much pencil on the paper. So you wanna, you wanna get all your details down, but don't oversaturate the paper with pencil marks because that will ruin your inking. It'll make your inking harder to be uh, clean. You know, it'll make it, it'll make it messier. And a good inking is always a clean inking. You don't want it to be messy. Another tip that I can give you about inking is try to lay down your thin lines first. When you're inking, give yourself that wireframe thin line to, to isolate all the contours, all the line work. Get them as accurate as possible, as smooth as possible. But if you go thin, remember that you could always go thicker. When you're inking, you want to lay down from thin to thick. You want to lay down all your thin lines first because you could always fill in heavier and heavier. You can't take away ink unless if you want to use white out or white paint. Um, but the best inking is done without any white paint. The best inking is done all just pure ink. That's when it really looks really crisp and, and it makes it gives people the illusion that it's printed. Um, I've had people look at my inks. My, uh, my original inks and ask me if it's a copy or not like yeah. is this is this an original or is this a, a laser cut like you've seen someone uh, yeah I've seen your inking and it's crazy because <laughs> it looks like it's a work that you've done in the computer and I think that you have uh, mastered the work with ink a lot yeah I I didn't I didn't set out to become a really good inker or even to be a comic book anchor, mm -hmm. but I just developed that that skill and actually learned to enjoy it. Um, like I said, it's 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 meditative for me. Like I haven't inked in a while, but when I do ink, I yeah. sit down and I get lost in it. I get lost in the cross hatching. I get lost in all the little shapes that you start to make. Um, and I know I have the patience now because I've I've developed a skill. I have the patience to sit there and ink something over a period of two or three days and I won't lose my patience. I, I know that I can play that game nice and steady and that at the end it's going to be worth it. Right. Um, and I think that's something that inking teaches you as an artist. It teaches you to slow down and to think about the, a bigger plan. It makes you think about the whole composition. It makes you think about the bigger picture at the end. Um, where sometimes when you're, if I'm using spray paint or if I'm using oil paint, I'm not thinking like that. I'm just going nuts and just mm -hmm. laying down color and laying down this and that. Inking, inking, I really enjoy inking because it, it makes me only think about the shapes, the lines, the black and white, and that's it. And I don't have to think about color. Mm -hmm. I can empty my brain of color or any other like 
things that are in my head of like you know what what might be difficult in the piece yeah um and i guess another thing is is that if when you're inking you know that at the end it's gonna be something that is impactful right you know it's got that high contrast do you use inking for or have you done inking for graffiti pieces um or you've done it for anything characters and graffiti pieces or well one of one of the best examples of inking that i documented was savage sword which was a black book that i did in mirrors's black book mirrors one um i did a piece in his black book uh and i recorded i put it on youtube if you guys want to check it out go to youtube.com slash cortez nyc look for savage sword um and that i i recorded step by step the inking process and i used all types of different tips and brushes and all that and you really you really see what i'm talking about in that video but that's an example of inking where i i did it for graffiti for graffiti style um but i've inked for t-shirts i've inked I've, i designed tattoos where i i designed the characters you know the, the skulls and whatever and then they use that for a tattoo um i've inked for logos right. where i've i've actually inked characters and things that become logos um i mean inking is something that i don't think is going to go away as long as they're i mean now i i do inking in the computer yeah with, with vector shapes um but i think i i still think that there's something to inking that i don't think will go away as long as people are looking at that jet black mm -hmm. I, i guess it's the minimum that you could do right it's a it's a black mark on a white paper yeah and that's that's what people want to see mm -hmm. um i think another thing about inking is the scale of it um usually when you ink you go small and you go very detailed Um, it's rare that you see giant, you know, inkings. Mm -hmm. I think that might be something I might explore later in life. It, you know, I might explore doing some really large-scale inkings to see how that would look. Yeah, know. I think the only time when I saw something that it was super big and it was ink, um, it was when I went to the Met Museum. Mm. And they had an exhibition for, I believe it was Chinese writing. So they had these huge papers of Chinese writing and, it, and they use ink. But that's the only time I've seen it, not actual, let's say, art with characters or something different. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the United States, inking became really popular because of the printing press, especially comics, comics and, and newspapers, because that was the way that they can actually get illustrations printed with one color. You know for cheap um and and they knew that they can photograph it and, and reproduce it very cleanly compared to a painting or a sketch or a pencil sketch or something like that yeah. so it became popular for that and and i think once computers came into play you know people kind of walked away from it a bit but i, I think even now with the tattoo you know frenzy that everybody's into uh -huh. tattoos and it's just so normal to get a tattoo and to be into tattoo culture i think inking is got a home yeah exactly. within that culture you know, if it, you want to make a tattoo or learn how to tattoo you need to know how to ink yeah and and i and also i just think even if even if it's not for your tattoo the aesthetic is similar mm -hmm. that people can appreciate an ink drawing yeah um and i think i mean one last thing i would say is i've 
if you're going to get into inking, there's a lot of books on inking. Study all kinds of inking if you're going to learn inking. Don't just study comic book inking. Um, study old classic inking, um, illustrations and, and wood carvings and um, Japanese art, Chinese art, you know, where they're using inking and um, old hieroglyphic style of inks, you know, like things like that where, where you can see the line work and the, the symbols, you know, coming to life. Um, that that's the kind of stuff that I studied that allowed me to kind of see it as a bigger the bigger picture of inking, not just comic books and you know cartoons, and that helps. Good luck, inkers. <laughs> Culture talk. Wow. <laughs> oh, culture talk. Culture talk. Wow, Carla. Wow. Carla, culture talk. Yeah. Now, this is un culture talk verdadero. Este es un culture talk cultural de lo más culturales. Word. Because today you're bringing the culture. Yes. Right? Yes. For us ignorant people who don't read, you're bringing the culture culture. I mean... Let's be real. Um, <laughs> well, I was thinking back to my school years. And when I went to school, um, I used to read, I, I used to read the books that they will send me to, to read from school, whatever, right? Um, and I always remembered uh, the magic realism style of writing. Uh, Which, that's kind of, it's kind of a cliche right yeah. for, for latino authors and if you're going to be an author it's like they're expecting you to do magical realism. exactly and it's interesting because it is always related to south america and latin america but we have to say that the style of magic realism magic realism um, writing is not only from latin america it it had gone through germany canada europe and now I feel like everybody, not everybody, but um, the writers that are coming up are mixing a lot of a kind of magic realism in their writing. When they talk about magical realism, what are the authors that they really speak about? Like who, who, who are like the, the main authors? That's what we're here to talk about. Yeah. Which ones? Which? Just give me some names. So Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Okay. Um, the, mo the most famous one. Probably, he's the right? most famous one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Isabel Allende. Okay. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard that name. Jose, I think it's uh, Jose Luis Borges. Okay. His last name is Borges. And and so what? When it comes to magic, I mean, are you a fan of magical realism? I think it's the only style that actually got my attention when I was going to school. Why? And and I was reading it. Because it was a different feel. Like be, in school, they they send you to read a lot of history, Don Quixote stuff like that, and that's very dense. It's a very dense um, reading. Okay. But reading magical realism is like make you feel as if the world that you're living in is actually magical. Right. Even though you're. What you're reading is, is actually kind of like a fantasy, but they mix real elements with magic. 
What I don't understand about that is how is that not surrealism? That that always confused me. Right. Magical realism compared to surrealism. Yeah. Always confused me. But I'm not here. I'm not an expert, so I can't debate. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So so give us an example. What what do you have? What examples do you have of of Latin authors, Latin American authors, that are magical realism? Yeah, I mean, um, starting with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which is like the father of magical realism in Latin America. So he's a Colombian novelist, uh, a short story writer, screenwriter, and journalist. He is considered one of the most significant authors of the 20th century and one of the best in Spanish language. And his best known novels are 100 Years of Solitude, The Atoms of Patriarch, and Love in Times in the Time of Cholera. Uh, I I haven't read those books, <laughs> but I read um, the story of a shipwrecked sailor and chronicle of a death foretold. So in Spanish will be. Uh, el relato de un náufrago y crónica de una muerte anunciada. So, for me, um, el relato de un náufrago uh, was the one that actually got me because this book... So, and I, I, yeah. I had to learn when you described this to me. A náufrago is, is a shipwrecked person. Yeah. A castaway, basically. Basically, yeah. Okay. So, the story is about what? So, the story is about uh, there's a ship I believe is leaving from the United States and on its way um, an accident happened and everybody on the ship dies except this one guy so the story is about his journey um, all alone in just one boat um, trying to get back to the place he was supposed to go which I think it was Colombia Um, and then the thing about the way that Gabriel Garcia Marquez described um, his journey is that he really goes into detail of how he felt and how he had to talk to himself to keep himself sane because he was all alone in in the ocean trying to get to whatever he was going to get because at that point he didn't have a map either or the way a way to communicate um to anybody else so i feel like that story got me because i actually felt what the character was feeling and then it was a very easy reading and it was easy to follow too So it got me like into actually paying attention to the reading, which is, uh, for me, is very difficult. I get very distracted. <laughs> so well, I can't yeah. read it unless it's got a, a, a fucking spaceship or. <laughs> 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 no bullshit. All right, listen. I mean, to be honest, to be honest, I, I, I don't read, I don't read fiction books. Mm -hmm. I uh, the the only book that ever stayed with me in my head was back in junior high school. It was a series of books called The Dark Is Rising, and it was a it was a, a collection. It was it was like imagine like a Harry Potter, uh -huh. but before Harry Potter. And it was it was a Dark Is Rising, and it was about a kid that he he came across like some pendulant 
that uh-huh. that uh, connected him to like the ancient whatever, and it gave him powers and some shit or whatever. He was uh-huh. like an old soul, tra- you know, in a young kid's bo- resurrected in a young kid's body. Whatever. That was okay. the only book that I ever really bothered reading that was fiction. Besides that, yes, I do read, and I realize that I do read. I read a lot of books related to my craft yeah related to art related like how-to books and books that will inform me right not so much books on nonfiction. Mm-hmm. um so this subject was interesting to me because you chose to do a subject that was a little challenging it got me curious about gabriel garcia marquez especially because he's the only one that really stands out to me as being somebody that i know doesn't yeah. mean that he's the best it just means that it's the only name i recognize really yeah and i did see one of the movies um in time of uh, the love in time of cholera. cholera right and it was like a novella yeah it was like a very dramatic novella it had some famous actors in it mm-hmm. and but it was a novella i don't know like i i don't think that that movie would do anything to encourage me to read right gabriel garcia marquez's books yeah 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 you describing to me this this short story or a short book and it's not a short story but it's a short book mm-hmm. about a shipwreck guy or a castaway mm-hmm. that's interesting like i like to see that movie you right. know what i mean um the thing about i mean these first two books this one um the shipwreck sailor and the chronicle of a death portal sorry <laughs> These two books um, are actually very in a journalistic style. So I think that's another thing that got me because it's almost as if these things actually happen because they're based in real events. And he took they're, it... They're really based in real events. Yeah. Based on a true story, really? Yeah. Uh, so he took it and he managed to basically convert it into a novel. That makes me think of those Latin American movies where it feels like they're talking about regular or real life. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden magical shit happens. Exactly. You know, at, at somewhere in the middle, the grandma flies away. Yeah. Or somewhere in the middle, she opens a door in her bedroom and it opens to another magical something. La Rosa de Guadalupe. Right. And then, <laughs> and then she ends up coming, you know, but then it, she comes right back to normal reality. But it's a little scene of fantasy. Right. I mean... Pan's Labyrinth. Exactly. That's really fantasy, but, feel, but it, it has feels some that. magical realism. I feel because it comes from a reality and because it's it's mixing history exactly. with the magical elements of a girl and her imagination. Yeah. So and that's another thing that when I was researching about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, they were saying that the thing about his writing is that he's mixing elements and actual realities from the, his culture from Colombia, from the history of Colombia, and then mixing it with the reality of society and the magical elements that happen in society because of the background of the culture. So because of religious um, ideologies or the customs and uh, the traditions, this creates like a magical elements in the story. So, so why are... Why is it so popular in Latin America? Is it because people of color are so magical? <laughs> <laughs> is it, or is it because we just fantasize too much? We daydream too much? <laughs> I think that it's a way to... It's a way to tell the stories because all... The majority of the authors 
uh, and the famous authors from Latin America, they touch on political events that happen in the country. So I think in order for them to talk about these events without being so political, mm, yeah. they use the magical thing and the thing that, oh, I'm going to be funny. Oh, I'm going to be, um, this is going to be like an adventure, but I'm mixing elements of the reality of what's happening in this country. As, as an artist, I can say that, yes, I can see where if you're going, if you're going through, quote unquote, the struggle, or mm -hmm. if you're going through things that you can't really speak about because mm -hmm. you're you're kind of being you're kind of being put in a position of silence yeah most of the time yeah i can see that that would mean that it's safer for you to you know add fantasy to kind of cover up exactly. what you're really trying to say exactly i, I can see that um Maybe that maybe that has a tie to, to magical realism and, and Latin America, where there's been so much political issues, social issues, moral issues, mm -hmm. you know, conservative, being very conservative morally and, and spiritually, religiously, you know. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of criticism also, even to religion, the same religion that they use as the magical aspect. They also point out that the negative stuff of religion in society and family structure and all this so yeah i think that's definitely an element all right so why don't you give us give us some of the list that you got what are the names okay so i have for the magical realism style i had um gabriel garcia marquez and then now i have isabel allende so isabel allende is a chilean writer her works sometimes contain aspect of um, the magical realism genre. Uh, she's famous for novels such as The House of the Spirits and City of the Beast. Um, Allende has, has been called the world's most widely read Spanish language author. Wow. And Agenda's novels are often based upon her personal experience and historical events and paid homage to the lives of women while waving together elements of myth and reality, realism. Sorry. Hmm. Well, yeah, myth, I guess, is another element, right? Yeah, exactly. Mixing all these elements that make us society. And I think us as... Uh, the Latino culture in, in Latin America, there's a lot of myths and, and a lot of... Superstitions, Superstitions, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So I think all this is also mixed in the stories that they want to tell. And sometimes they're even trying to fight those superstitions to say, but you see, this is not really real. The, ma the magical realism thing, I mean, like I said, you're bringing, you're bringing us into books here and that's that's difficult. I'm glad yeah, you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Listen, I'm glad you just raised the IQ level of this podcast Come a lot on. right now. <laughs> you just raised the level up a lot. You made us college grads now, but I mean, this is also for me. This is uh, this list. I actually want I want to keep reading a little bit more in Spanish because now 
I'm going to school here in the United States. Um, I feel like I'm losing my Spanish a little bit. Well, there's there's audiobooks on YouTube, so I could recommend that as well if you're lazy to read. I know. You can just listen to the audiobooks on the train ride in, train yeah. ride out, and you got the book in your head then. Yeah. But what I was going to say was you are challenging me right now, me specifically sitting next to you, to learn a little bit more about these authors because I, now I'm curious. This magical realism thing makes me think about all the Spanish movies because I'm a movie buff. It makes mm -hmm. me think of all the Spanish from Spain or Latin American movies that have these magical elements in this story that is being told in a very narrative straightforward realistic way and then suddenly turn have a, a weird twist you know they, they tend to like to do that right where they they'll give you this odd little twist at a certain point and you're like well what the fuck was that about and then you just swallow it because you're like all right well it's 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 weird it's latin and it's just weird you know yeah i think that the perfect example of magical realism as in movies Pedro Almodóvar in, in Spain. As a director, yeah. he is the man for magical realism in movies from Spain. If you see, I don't know if you remember Volver with Penelope Cruz. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's magical realism yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that the mom supposedly died, then she's not dead, they killed the guy, <laughs> all this crazy shit is happening, and it's supposedly <laughs> happening in reality. And, and I guess I guess the fact that she, that the mom died but she's not dead and it leaves you the way that the author or let's say in this case the director, the director. presents it to exactly. you makes you question whether you just saw something magical or, or something crazy or is there something crazy and it's real exactly it, it can happen but it's it's crazy these people are crazy or it's something that just really is magical um, for me the magical movies that I can imagine that pop into my head like i said before like like water for chocolate oh yeah that that's also a magic of, realism a yeah. lot of poetry in there a lot of weird magical shit that happens like it's playing like a straightforward story and then you have some magic shit that happens um the frida movie yeah with selma hayek frida yeah, yeah that one has a ton i mean she's an artist she's portraying an artist mm -hmm. so i get it but it still weaves a lot of poetry mm -hmm. visual poetry So, okay, and then I have two other authors that I just wanted to throw out there because I know that you guys might know them. They're not necessarily part of the magical realism style, but they're very known and they're very important too to the Latino community. Um, so the next one is Paulo Coelho, and he's a Brazilian lyricist and novelist and the recipient of numerous international awards. He's best known for his widely translated novel, The Alchemist, and other novels like Veronica Decides to Die, The Sahir, and Alep. So Paulo Coelho, I think, I actually think that he's, of oh, I've heard that he's a little bit overrated. <laughs> This is the author that I've, that I've heard Facts. a lot of people saying. Facts. That, calling him out <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i think i read the alep i think that was a very short um book that i think i read some of it uh but almost all his books are about motivational inspirational things like look for the gold like look for 
your goals and follow your goals and follow your dreams um so i feel like and they're easy to read i've heard that too so i feel like a lot of people have said that they don't understand why everybody loves him because he's not the big deal right <laughs> um and then uh to finish but this is i think one of the most important writers uh her name is well, she's a poet, but her name is Julia de Burgos. Julia de Burgos. Yes. So she's a Puerto Rican poet. She was an advocate for, of Puerto Rican independence and was also a civil rights activist for women and African Afro-Caribbean writers. Uh, some of her most known poems are Poema para mi muerte, my death poem. Wow, that's dark. Yo mis... Yo misma fui mi ruta, I was my own path, Alba de mi silencio, down of my silence. Okay. So, Julia de Burgos is a very important poet for Puerto Ricans and I feel the Caribbean in general. Uh, she really opened up uh, a space for Afro-Caribbean poets to write in in a very uh, it, this was a long 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 time ago right so I feel like she opened up doors for a lot of women also to feel empowered and to feel like they have the power to do whatever they want to write about whatever they feel and to be free um, and Julia de Burgos was a, a, an activist for Puerto Rican independence too and I feel like she is a very important part of our culture that sometimes it gets forgotten. Like, yeah, yeah, we forget about her um, and we forget about the impact of her work. A lot of people in the Caribbean, uh, most, most in, in the Dominican Republic, got to know her and got to know her work and yeah. So she's another author and, and from her, you can read her poems, they're short, uh, I think there's some that has been translated into English um, and they're very intense, she was a very intense poet and her poems also always was talking about her freedom but also like the way she had to fight with society for her to find a place as, as an independent woman but also that she had to be part of what society was telling her she had to be. So to be a mom or to be a sister or to be a caregiver and all this. Julia de Burgos definitely put a mark in, in the history of Puerto Rico and the culture of Puerto Rico. A point, something that I would want to point out is just th th these authors that are creating these, these famous authors that are from Latin America that are creating these books, they were way ahead of their time. They were challenging probably the norms that other authors were doing, mm -hmm. which was prob probably straightforward fiction with a character, a story, a plot, you know, a very straightforward storytelling. And they probably ha were having fun. Yeah, like, you know, like all, all styles, they come fighting something from the last style, yeah. like in art. Yeah. With modernism and postmodernism and all this. So I think, yeah, it's the uh, same thing. But I'm sure, like, at this point, 
because we're so far into it, I'm sure a lot of movies have made that magical element yeah. seem very light in the books now. You're used to the movies that show you so much craziness that when you go to a book, it doesn't seem so crazy. Uh-huh. Right? So uh-huh. when you probably see these books now, you probably don't get so impressed. You're exactly. Like, you know, it's no big deal. Um, but I would say for movies that make me... They're not magical realism, but they make me think uh, along these lines. This is uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's it's a movie that starts off feeling like it's a regular old fashioned kind of movie where these guys are breaking out of prison. Mm-hmm. But little by little that you start to see these fantastic elements coming into the into play in the scenes. And then you realize that you're in some sort of weird, surreal fantasy. And I would say it's magical kind of right. realism where you're not in reality. This movie was actually um, based off of the old Greek mythologies of mm. the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And they just took the old story of the Odyssey and they updated it to modern times. And that's why it felt so fantasy is because they told the story of these guys breaking out of prison. But it was basically retelling that old thing um and then another another director that always is just fantasy and reality and it's it's really fantasy it's crazy is uh uh, aronofsky darren aronofsky is the guy he's the guy who did the fountain okay yeah I believe. That's like an intense magical realism. Well, I mean, it's fantasy. It's fantasy, but he throws in, he mixes it. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why. That's why it's like another level. If you can have magical realism and then you have a level, an upper level of magical realism, that's where the fountain is, because it does mix reality and the situation that the guy is going on with this fantasy world that he's living in. Yeah, like, he, he's the same guy who did Black Swan. Oh, yeah. He's the same guy. He goes dark. Yeah, no, He goes yeah. dark, but it's... it's but it is, it is, yeah. He, Requiem for a Dream, you haven't seen that one yet, but Requiem for a Dream is another one that gets really weird. It's like, it's like a regular movie, and then all of a sudden it takes you into this other reality. Yeah, and I think that is, it is true what you're saying. After you, you have seen it visually with your eyes <laughs> uh, but you have seen the whole concept with visually the mu- the with the music that that you don't have to imagine anything that everything is given to you as magical and realistic, realistic. Yeah. Yeah. then when you go back to the book and you have to do all this work <laughs> just by reading the words imagining everything yeah I can see that you're gonna be like no I'm not yeah, like, really like, gonna do like this the, if, I, I, we have to look at Black Swan again, but I remember Black Swan. No, Black like, Swan was crazy. But it was like it's a ballerina. But it was yeah yeah. It's a story about a ballerina. And, and it's her struggles. But you're going into her consciousness, exactly. her, her, her psyche. Yeah. And maybe that's where Latinos got that magical realism is in their psyche. Exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this section of uh, literature, <laughs> uh, literature talk. Literature uh, studies and magical <laughs> realism. Thank you. Hablando español, Carla. Yes, hablando, hablando español, hablando, hablando, hablando español. What do you got for me? What are you gonna teach me? Teach me some Spanish. Okay. So first one, how do you say inking? Inking. Inking or ink? Inking. Inking. 
Bueno, ink es tinta. So, inking would be tinteando? Casi. What is it? Entintando. Entintando. Yeah, I know. I really didn't know that one either. Entintando sounds like intentando. <laughs> entintando. Entintando. All right, entintando, inking. Next. Okay, next one. Next one is how do you say tools? Tools? Arria. Oh, that one throws me off every time. Herramienta. <laughs> Herramientas. Eh. Say it again. Herramientas. Herramientas. But it can also be los instrumentos. Tools. Instrumentos. Herramienta. Instrumentos I would use. Yeah, it's instrumentos. Tools are instruments. Instrumentos. More than yeah. herramientas. Herramienta. Because herramientas is more like the hammer. Hard, hardware. The, yeah. Herramientas hardware. Okay. Okay. Dale, instrumentos. Got it. I'm so Spanish okay. right now. I'm so Spanish. Okay, I'm sick with it. I'm sick with the Spanish. The next one is sharp. Sharp. Ooh. Wow, you getting me. Sharp, puntudo. Afilado. Puntiagudo. Puntiagudo. There's like three words. Fuck Spanish. I no, I actually, yeah, huh. but it can, okay, exactly. So sharp can be puntudo. Like Pun if somebody, puntiagudo. Como, tiene punta. Puntiagudo. Si tú le sacas la punta a un lápiz, it's a sharp pencil. It's puntudo. It's puntiagudo. Puntiagudo. Yeah. Okay. Puntiagudo is sharp like a pencil. Puntiagudo. Yeah. Then it can be also definido. Definido, sharp. Definido. Una oh, línea like definida. Like sharp, a, defined. Like sharp. a sharp line. Okay. Defined. Definido. And it can also be fine, but I'm not going to use fine for sharp. Fine in Spanish, which is fino. And, and what was the other word that you said before? Puntiagudo. Puntiagudo, and there was another one. And definido. Okay. So let's use sharp. It's gonna be puntiagudo. Puntiagudo, because I'm talking about sharp pencils and sharp. And lines. definido. And definido. De definido. 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 Got it. And then, how do you say fine? Fine. Fino. Oh, okay. How do you say brush? Brocha. Oh yes. Come on, man. How do you say? Yes. Japanese art. Arte japonesa. Japonés. Oh, japonés. Arte japonés? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. How do you say tattoo? Tatuaje. Ooh. Got that yeah. one. Come on, man. That's like, that's no brainers. Come on. How do you say symbols? Symbols. Símbolos. Yes. How do you say authors? Authors is... Autores. How do you say um, magical realism? <laughs> magical realism. Realismo mágico. <laughs> yes. Really? <laughs> How do most. you say short story? Short story. Eh, cuento corto. Just cuento. Cuento is short story. Cuento. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to a long story, which is what? A novel. 
pedazo de novela. Ya. Yeah. Nabo novela, short story is a cuento. Ya. Yeah. All right. All right, so back in the day, I'm sure Gabriel Garcia Marquez, when he was writing his novel, uh -huh. his novels, yes. he sat down, he didn't have a computer. No. He sat down on a machine to write, on a typewriter. How do you say typewriter in Spanish? Maquinilla. No. Yes, Does you máquina do. escribir? Maqui well, I've heard always que es la maquinilla. Maquinilla. I don't know if it, that's a Puerto Rican thing, but yeah, because that just sounds like a that just sounds like machinish, like a little machine, a maquinilla. It doesn't mean typewriter. Well, but it might be. It might be. You want to check your Google search? Yeah, let me Google search. <laughs> Tell me the next one. What's the next one? So the typewriter, following Google translation, es una máquina de escribir. Máquina de escribir, that's what I said, Carla. Come on, you have to listen to the Colombian here because you know the Colombian Spanish. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, there was a word that you that you taught me during this this uh, episode. Shipwreck. Yeah. How do you say shipwreck in Spanish? Naufrago. I say it again. Naufrago. Naufrago. I have never in my goddamn life used or heard the word naufrago. Naufrago is shipwrecked. Yes. That sounds nothing like shipwrecked. <laughs> you see, that's, that's why you need to learn that word. Is naufrago because it's nautical? I feel so, yeah. But it's frago is like a failure, like a nautical failure? Might naufrago. Be. Yeah. We got another episode in the bag. Woohoo! Seamless. Episode 15 done. Yep. That's how we do. Like Cardi B. How we do? Cardi B. <laughs> in the street. <laughs> Alright, so next episode is gonna be episode 16. Born Fly! We're gonna have a special guest next episode, which is Damien Dolly. He is an old friend of the show, old personal friend, and old collaborator. Uh, great designer with a great fashion sense. He's going to be here to talk to us about his career and his current state in the fashion industry. And because he loves football, soccer, <laughs> we're going to be talking about football, some soccer players that we love, and we're going to be hablando español. At the end, as always, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>